This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. It's a look at an in-depth interview you won't hear anywhere else. My full conversation with Tom Barrett, the executive chairman of Colony and the new CEO of Colony, Mark Ganzi. I caught up with them for a wide-ranging conversation in New York City about the future of real estate, politics, and much more. So Tom Barrick, dislocation, disruption, they are not unfamiliar to you, and yet we throw around the term unprecedented a lot right now. What is this period of dislocation and disruption like for you and for the real estate business? Confusion. Um, but, but confusion is, is the norm. <clears throat> in, in all of our businesses, when you, when you think in our lifetime, and you and I, kind of started this adventure together in private equity and alternative assets. Um, the ordinary always reverts to the mean. And although I'm cycling way ahead of all of you, um, I've never seen the ordinary. As, as soon as information becomes efficient and transparent and transmuted, um, the, the edge is gone. And everybody has to pivot and move to someplace else. It's very difficult for institutional minds to do that. But the intersection of financial chaos, uh, social upheaval, political confusion, uh, a global pandemic, the gigantic spread between the haves and the have-nots, and a move away from globalization, which we all had a firm belief in for the last 50 years, to a kind of secular populism has created a, a perfect storm. And in that perfect storm, I think leaders do what they do. They lead, but sometimes they actually have no idea to where they're leading. So that was a lot, <laughs> uh, Mark Ganzi, that Tom just laid out. Financial chaos, social unrest, political confusion, global pandemic. That would seem to indicate that from an investor's perspective, we are in uncharted waters. I don't think we've ever seen this collision of things. As you think about what feels to me like a reset in this business, how do you attack all of those things? What's the approach? Well, look, the one thing that keeps all of this going is digital. And so our transformation as a company and where we're going is very apropos for what's happening in the world today. If there's one thing that is consistent, it's the ability to deliver services across a variety of mediums that is enabling the economy to keep moving forward despite the pandemic. And so as we think about the things that are important and where we need to go, we're looking 10 years ahead. And so as we think about where investable opportunities are, you have to be thinking around the corners. And around the corners today isn't so much just about this mobilization to digital and this transformation of 5G, but it's really thinking behind that, what are the key building blocks that are gonna enable the economy to keep going despite civil unrest, despite pandemics, despite market dislocation? What is the one thing that can keep going? And from our perspective, it's really our ability to continue to invest in great businesses, great logos, we have great customer relationships. And the reality is all this has to keep going, Jason. We have to keep moving forward. And so in that respect, we feel like we're very well positioned as we invest for the next decade. Perhaps I'd offer to you as we invest over the next two decades uh, of where this economy is moving. So, Tom, let's go micro for a second, which is how you deal with this as a firm. 
July 1st, you hand over the reins from Tom to Mark in terms of running the combined business following a transaction that puts a lot of things together. Help us understand from a micro perspective that decision, the timing, and the mechanics of what it means for Colony, this brand that has existed you know, now for 30 plus years. It's a monumental decision, especially for a founder, right? Uh, and and when, when I say founder, it, it wasn't from brilliance or, or intellectual creation of a, of a great theory that I became a founder. We all wander into a situation where you start with a deal, and we had a great background, as, as you know, the Bass is really where we, we kind of learned how to be a contrarian investor in, the, in this node. But at the end of the day, it's all about culture, values. And, and when you look at succession, moving and pivoting, when you spend your life building an institution that has permanency, that has transparency, that has consistency, that has governance, is really difficult, even in a private setting. But we're a public company. So when you think of the constituencies we have, we have public shareholders, we have institutional limited partners, we have associates, employees everywhere, we have customers, we have, as Mark always says, follow the logos moving into digital, even, even the fangs, the, the gigantic institutions around the world that you have to pay attention to. And what they're all concerned about is one thing, integrity, right? The long line relationship is more important than returns because returns ebb and flow. So in the process of, of looking at real estate, and as you know, we've talked about before, we, I've always looked at real estate for trading. I've never looked at real estate as permanent ownership because nothing's changed. In 60 years, look at the building we're in. Look at the buildings across the street. Many of them were built in the 20s. The streets were built in the teens. The tunnels were built in the late 20s. And nothing has changed almost in 100 years. So the ebb and flow of real estate values has always been challenged by functional, physical, and financial obsolescence. And what people miss is this battle between cash flow and capex. So Colony has always been in the forefront of kind of contrarian views of switching at impact points, at inflection points, in which you're seeing something different than others see. Now, how do you do that? Um, Steve Jobs <coughs> had a great speech that he gave to a bunch of teenagers saying, and I'm not comparing myself to Steve Jobs, I admire Steve Jobs and look for leadership qualities there, and saying most people are navigating streets and alleys at street level. And some very good and talented people find ways to navigate through those streets by looking in front of them. Great leaders look at it from 80 stories above, and they can see the destination without having to go through the parian thrust of what ordinary people are doing to find an extraordinary event. But to do that, you have to have extraordinary experiences. And right, we've lived in a, in a place where experiences are very ordinary, and we put a premium on those ordinary experiences. You go to great school, you go to great prep school, you go to great business school, you come out, you go to work for a financial institution. That's the norm. As, as I was trying to navigate the next iteration of Colony's life, because we've had lots of them, Right, we transitioned from a great beginning with the Basses really in, in the 80s in a contrarian environment with the RTC and then beginning the acquisition of, of Weston Hotels, 
1990 was a distress period. Nobody thought these were really businesses at the time. 1994, Europe ends up in the same distress. 1997, Asian contagion. 2000, the internet boom and bust. 2007, the housing boom and bust. And we kept reinventing ourselves. So at this stage, the dilemma of saying, what's the leadership for the next two decades? To me was about who can really define where the ball is going, not where the ball is. And who had that culture, who had that brand? and who had two very important things, which usually don't come in the same package. Brilliance, scarce, rare, very difficult to find, and courage. And I had invested with Mark. I've known Mark actually since he was a teenager. His dad was a friend of mine. So I watched his kind of meteoric career in this arena as an entrepreneur in digital infrastructure, and there were none. Right? There was no soup to nuts master of this universe. And I invested with him on a personal basis way before we got together in, in 2016, 2017, where I was trying to convince him that moving into this format of professionally managed funds with a, with a public entity as the anchor would be a great go-forward path. And I really became enamored with that, with his vision, with his ability to see it from 80 stories, with his never-ending work ethic in an arena that was really interesting to me because it was the railroad, it was the electricity of the future. The only thing that's changed is internet and computing in 50 years, right? This building is basically the same. Residences are basically the same. Shopping centers are basically the same. And eventually, that continual CapEx will erode away returns. And what Mark was doing was, was what I thought um, the future had in store and his personality, his character, and his integrity fit into what I as a founder had hoped the continuation of, of that culture for Colony would be. So Mark, let, let's get down a level and help people understand exactly what it is you're investing in. What is digital infrastructure? And then let's, we're going to talk about sort of how it relates and, and what it means for the entire enterprise going forward. But I mean, what are we talking about here when, when we get down to brass tacks? You know, for, for me to distill it in the most simplistic form, it's really the plumbing that enables information to flow. And so the way that we communicate, the way that we do commerce, the way that we conduct our fitness, the way our kids are going to school today, um, the way that we conduct business through a Zoom call, all of that requires mission-critical infrastructure to enable the origination of a communication and ultimately to terminate a communication point. And so along that road, Jason, we touch a lot of different elements in the ability to enable that technology. And so it could be a, a mobile tower that you see along the Hutchinson Parkway. It could be fiber that runs underneath Sixth Avenue. It could be a data center that sits in, for example, Ashburn, Virginia. Or it could be a small cell that literally sits at the corner of 54th and Madison, where we have a micro tower that's providing amplified coverage. There's so many different forms of digital infrastructure today, and it's only growing. It's really becoming an asset class unto itself. And as we try to place it as an investor, we try to think about where is it? Is it private equity? Is it infrastructure? Is it, is it real estate? And the reality is it's a, it's a little bit of all three things from an institutional investor perspective trying to distill it down to one thing. And on one hand, it has operational complexities, right? Think about the trust that's given to us in terms of managing those networks 
for Amazon or Microsoft or Verizon or Vodafone, Telefonica, Google. I mean, these are the customers that entrust us daily with their information. They trust us with the delivery mechanism of their communication services. And so what we've tried to do to make it easy for institutional investors to understand, we say, look, there's sort of four key swim lanes right now in digital infrastructure. There's, there's towers, there's fiber optic cables, there's data centers, and there's small cell infrastructure. Those are really sort of the four biggest verticals to think about as an asset class today. Now, of course, there's a lot of nuances in, in, in between the lines there. But once again, the easiest way to think about this is these are really the new railroads. And you think about you know, what the Rockefellers did, and you think about these transformative moments in the history of the time of our country. In digital, we're having that moment right now. This is really the next major migration path in technology in this country. You know, whether it's cloud computing or 5G, there's many thematics happening at the same time. And then you put that against a backdrop of COVID and a pandemic, and all of this is accelerating. So I, I wanted, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I wanted to press you on that, which is sure. we've heard essentially people say that, especially on the digital side, and from a trans transformational perspective, and we'll talk about cities and suburbs in a second, but the acceleration of that trend, how can you quantify the acceleration in terms of, as you've looked out at, okay, this is where we think digital infrastructure is going. We thought it was gonna take 10 years, it's actually gonna take a year. Like what, how do you think about that? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of things happening at the same time. And, and once again, to try to keep it simple for, yeah. for investors and for Main Street, I think that the, the biggest thematic is mobility. So once again, as we, as we think about our devices and we think about where we conduct business, where we conduct commerce, where we conduct education, and at the same time, we want to be mobile. We want to constantly be on the move and we want it faster, cheaper, better. And so as we move to 5G, 5G is probably in my 26 years of building networks, it's the most exciting step function in technology that we've ever seen. Think about an environment where you've got lower latency, which is the distance between the antenna and the actual device. Think about an environment where the device operates 10 times faster than your existing 4G phone. And think about more applications. Think about more entertainment. Think about all the things that you can do from a mobile perspective. It's a, it's a massive change. And to the consumer, they don't see it yet, right? Because you haven't touched a 5G device yet, which, you're, which we're now rolling out 5G devices. So this is exciting. It's a, probably a seven to eight year investment cycle for us. We're talking about 1.1 trillion of CapEx that's gonna be put in to build 5G. Um, we think about cloud computing. We're really in the infancy in cloud computing. Mm -hmm. You know, less than 20% of the information sits on the cloud today. And we're transforming, we're moving a lot of that information and applications towards the cloud. Because remember in compute, Jason, you've got two things happening at the same time. You have your applications that are running in real time, and then you have your storage, where all your data is stored. And all of that is transforming at the same time too, as we think about a new migration path for where data is stored and where data is ultimately computed. Right. So these two thematics are so massive. And um, I think, look, every quarter we're measuring the performance of our companies. We've got 16 businesses around the globe that operate in the digital realm. And you know, we had businesses that were growing at seven, eight percent, now they're growing at 20 percent, 30 percent. The organic growth that we've experienced in the first, second and third quarter down at the portfolio company level is astounding, because our customers are, are sort of saying to us, "Look, we need more. We need more fiber. We need more towers. You know, we need more data center capacity. We need more megawatts in terms of power for compute. And we have to deliver. We have to wake up every day and we have to deliver for our customers.
And so, Tom, square that with the traditional, quote unquote, real estate business and what that means in terms of if you're doing this, you're obviously doing less of traditional real estate. How do you map that out in terms of talking to your investors, talking to potential investors, talking to the world about that transition? Because, yes, it's an inflection point, but it also feels pretty radically different to some extent. Yeah, and for sure it is. I view it as an accelerant, right? This pandemic is just an accelerant of what was happening in an event. And I think the, the difficult thing for great entrepreneurs like Mark rolling to a great public company CEO, public companies like consistency and right. themes they can see a decade ahead. And what that produces most of the time is a bureaucracy and ordinary returns, right? I mean, that's really what it is. So if you looked at REITland, REITland was all about dividends. Just give me long-term contractual obligors on the other side and let me collect net rents. And that doesn't exist anywhere. We were already on that path, right? WeWork, Airbnb, Amazon.com. I mean, my garage looks like a Simon shopping center, right? By ordering whatever you want online. So the value of real estate has become less and less important in the midst of this accelerated um, disintermediation of all those things that were important, including information, by the way, because our businesses grew up by saying, well, we have some little competitive edge. You look at this office building and say, okay, real, real estate is very simple. I have to find a piece of land that's going to take me a year. Then I have to get it entitled and I have to go to mayor, uh, uh, a mayor of any great city and say I need entitlements. That takes another year. Then I need an architect to design it. That's another year. Then I need to build it, that's two years. Then I need to less, it's another two years. It's five years from the time you have an idea to the time that it's created. Now you have ideas being created in an afternoon, right? Innovation and technology is the norm. So in convincing our investors to say, look, this intersection, what isn't gonna change is the infrastructure of what it takes these great logos to be able to amass the new distribution of everything that we need socially, intellectually, healthcare-wise, physically, entertainment-wise, it's just changed. And what it isn't going to be is obsolescent because it's reinventing itself on a constant basis. So to me, net cash flow is all you can eat. Forget about whatever these other factors, AFFO, FFO, earnings, dividends. It all comes from net cash flow. And net cash flow is created by contractual revenues for simple investors like ourselves saying we, we have to create something that these customers and clients will use. And that infrastructure is a different kind of real estate. Now remember, 10 years ago there were no digital REITs. Five years ago there were a couple. Today, the dominant factors in the REIT industry, the biggest multiples, are digital companies. They didn't think when Mark first started he had to convince people that radio cell towers were real estate. David Simon didn't have to convince anybody that a shopping center was right. real estate, or, or Steve Roth that the great Vornado buildings were real estate. So I think if you want extraordinary returns, if you want to get out of the norm, which the problem today is that, right? There's too much liquidity with too few places to go, which is we're seeing this boom in the, in the equity market while we're having this devastating financial and pandemic crisis in the world unemployment across the globe at higher levels than we've ever seen, and anarchy in just about every nation imaginable. So 
to me, you go where the puck is going. And real estate is a very unmoving, stable asset, which is the good news and the bad news. And if you don't pivot, if you don't move, eventually those bricks will fall on your head. And that's been the history of it. So let's, let's push on that a little bit because I would add to the list that you gave at the beginning of this conversation around financial chaos, social unrest, political confusion, an existential crisis when it comes to real estate, commercial and residential. We don't know where we're gonna work. We don't know where we're gonna live. So it, what we talk about accelerants here, I mean, this is a massive dislocation in the entire way we think about real estate. Do you agree? And so what do you do with your existing holdings in the context of that? Um, as, a, as a coward, what we've done is sell it. So investors are, are looking for some diversification from the equity market. And real estate has always been that, right? If you look at institutional investment, the purpose of it has really been diversification, that, it's a, it, that, that the covariant factor of it is strong. I don't believe that to be true. I don't believe real estate is going to vanish. What's going to vanish is the balance sheet, the difference in assets and liabilities. This, this real estate, this office building will always be of value, but at a new basis to someone else. Because I, as an occupant of this office building, am going to do something that has never been done in the last 50 years, which is to say I'm not going to pay contractual rent. And whatever my business is, if I'm a retail operator in a shopping center now, Every retail operator saying, you, owner of the shopping center, are going to be my partner. So I'll pay you a percentage of my gross rent, but I don't know what my contractual rent is. I don't know if I have customers. I don't know if I'm going to get deliveries. I don't know what the regulatory framework of this pandemic is. I have no idea. So if you want me to occupy it, you're going to share that risk with me. Well, that's not what real estate investors were used to. So I think it changes. It doesn't go away. It just reprices itself. Right? Every aspect will reprice itself and reinvent itself, and entrepreneurs will figure out how to do it, and investors will be frustrated because that contractual net rent and cash flow, if you think of an office building today, somebody owns a prime office building, in which we used to think that marble and granite and burled wood and individual offices were the premium. Coming back, what we're sure of is none of that is true. Right. right? the way people are going to be together, if they're together. And what we've all learned is Zoom is pretty interesting. It's not socially or culturally uh, rewarding to us, as it is to our kids who develop their personalities on these devices. Right? I mean, they have virtual personalities. They have virtual lives. They create virtual images, selfies, Facebook, Snapchat. It's, it's, it's a new medium to communicate, which eliminates a lot of things. I think all of the existing things will stay. They're just not going to stay in the kind of investment theme that investors looked at over history. And so, Mark, what does that look like for the overall, now as the CEO of the whole shebang, what does it look like for the mix going forward between traditional real estate and digital infrastructure? Well, look, as a, as a firm colony two years ago, Jason, we had 2% of our assets were in digital. You know, fast forward to today, we're almost at 50% rotation of our assets under management to digital. So we've, we've had enormous transformation of the company in the last two years. The work's not finished yet. What we've told investors is where we'll be, you know, by Q1 of, of uh, next year, uh, the year following. 
So by the end of next year, we should be about over 90% rotated into digital as we continue to find the right homes for some of these legacy assets that Tom talked about. And so monetizations have gone as, as we would have expected, I think probably better than we would have expected. We had a, a really um, graceful departure from our industrial real estate portfolio to Blackstone. We had a great departure of our European office assets to AXA. Uh, we, we left a great partnership with Scott Reckler here in New York City earlier this year. And we're finding the right homes for these assets. And, and really, given that the acceleration part on the digital side has gone far better than we'd expected, it's given us a little bit of a longer runway to make sure that we have the right, the right cadence to where we're going dis, you know, to ultimately dispose of those assets. And on the digital side, we're growing. And we're growing at an incredible pace. I think this year, Jason, we've done seven significant transactions. We've deployed $20 billion of capital at Colony. I think that would make us one of the most active investors uh, in the world. Um, and so we're, we're finding really good opportunities to put capital to work. We're forming capital at, at an accelerated pace. I think as the market leader in digital infrastructure, it's given us the, the mantle to go forward and continue to raise capital on a private basis where we can find really good opportunities to back, uh, back our customers. And meanwhile, at the same time, we, we've made just enormous progress on the corporate side. You know, really having a, a great deal of success deleveraging the business the last six months. We've, we've brought leverage down from 12 to eight times. We've cut GNA by over $75 million in the last year. And we're making all of the right moves to get us into a position to be a leaner and a better REIT and, and candidly a REIT of the future. If you think about where real estate investment is going in the future, uh, where we are in Converge Network Solutions is where you want to be long term. And so are you getting... Is the appetite out there for those traditional real estate assets, especially in hospitality and commercial? It's incredible. I think you know we've been pleasantly surprised at, at how we've been able to not only exit some of these assets, but really exit it at positive net book value, which is the key. So that we're returning capital back to the balance sheet where we can redeploy that capital into what we believe are the best opportunities in digital. So you know, exiting the community shopping center space, which we did earlier this year in a transaction. We had a series of community shopping centers anchored by Albertsons. Somebody else felt like that was a great opportunity. And guess what? It probably is. Think about in the pandemic, what has worked? Retail shopping centers that are anchored by big uh, grocery stores. So that worked out really well for that particular investor. I think the lodging sector is interesting. I think I've, one of the things I was telling Tom the other day that I noticed is we're seeing private equity come into lodging, which is something I haven't seen in 20 years. Right. And I'm not talking about Barry and, and Starwood. I'm talking about real private equity firms backing management teams and management companies looking to acquire uh, hotel assets, not only management platforms, but actual assets. So we've got a, actually a pretty good limited service portfolio. And so we've done great work over the last six months restructuring all of our debt. We're now in a great place where we can think about what is the right path for those set of assets. And so We'll spend the rest of this year thinking about the logical home for our lodging assets, and I think we're going to actually see a, probably a pretty good result um, looking at the total amount of capital that's sitting on the sidelines. It's incredible to me that you, know, you think about fundraising right now. We've had a great amount of success fundraising because people are excited to be reallocating assets in the real asset category from traditional real estate and traditional infrastructure into digital. But by the way, there's opportunistic real estate capital being raised all around the globe right, right now to take advantage of what Tom just talked about. So um, I think we'll see, we'll see good, op yeah, good, an, good an opportunities. An, an interesting factoid. If, if you think about just real estate, is gonna, the hospitality business is going to be there 
hotels are going to be there, the pier is going to be there, the plaza is going to be there, limited service is going to be there. All that changes is the nature of the contracts and the services. So you have C Corps, you have Hyatt, Hilton, Marriott, that had a contractual relationship with an owner, saying I want a percentage of the gross, I want a percentage of the net, I want a brand fee, I want a franchise fee, here's what you have to deliver to your customer in order to keep my franchise. I want two turndown services, I want three fitness centers, I want six restaurants, I want food service 24 hours a day, and the owner is saying, whoa, there's no way. So now the C-Corps are changing their relationship with the owners. So the liability side is coming down, down, down. So I think what you're going to see in all this is Mark is saying, we're, we're seeing values because now you have a new kind of manager, owner coming in saying, I can take advantage of this disruption, of this accelerant. This is where it was going. Young people don't want all of this stuff. They have Grubhub. You, you, you don't need 24-hour food service. Right. Yeah. You don't need a, a health facility. You don't need two times um, turndown service. So I, I think the metamorphosis on the good side will happen. So the value of whatever you think an urban location or a suburban location, how that ebbs and flows, it'll still be there. Tom, I'm sitting here listening to you, though, and thinking maybe at a different time, this, this would be your, uh, you'd be feasting on this to some extent. I mean, these are the periods of real estate dislocation that you have found great success in over the years, and yet you're on the sell side, not, not the buy side of this. And, and I find that interesting. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll tell you why. Is as we develop kind of the distressed ideas and theories and people, people never see it when it's happening. Right? So a contrarian theme in real estate always seems foolish at the beginning. So while, while we had the great tenure at, at Bass with Bonderman and Coulter and Kelvin Davis and the whole history of, of what Bob had created, when we bought American Savings, people thought we were out of our minds. Why would you buy $30 billion of troubled assets in a regulated entity? Then the RTC started in 90. It was the same thing. People said, you're out of your mind. You're buying this junk for 30 cents on the dollar. Four years later, they said, that was nothing. You guys are idiot. Anybody could have made money by buying 30 cents on the dollar. What was the key was nobody had the information. We had an edge. Real estate people had an edge. Financial investors had an edge because the proliferation and the transparency of information and all of those things was limited to certain silos. Today, everybody has all the information. We have no edge. What edge do you have? There's zero edge. So to me, the thematic shift is more important than the distress of an economic component in a moment and value. Because now we have a public company, we have 550 institutional limited partners who are, are all looking for outsized returns while we're trying to produce replicatable dividends to the shareholders. And that happens over a decade. So it's hard for me to see these physically obsolescent um, structures, which are always going to be here, just the liabilities will be repriced. It's a longer, harder road than taking the thousands of threads that Mark has weaved over a lifetime, the hundreds of threads the colony has weaved in trust, what we talked about in culture and brand and managing institutional money, and putting it together in this tapestry of digital, which to me has the best component of net cash flow from contractually credit-worthy obligors. Look at, the, look at the stock market. It's all driven by five logos. 
Those are the five logos that you want on the other side of our transaction. I don't know anymore how to do a WeWork with individuals who are entrepreneurs who are innovating technology, which is we, we need more, but there's no contractual credit on the other side of this. So I just think it's a unique opportunity for that disintermediation by going to a new theme and going to the railroad and the utility of the future, which right. is all things digital. So Mark, in terms of, and then we'll move on from the disposal side, but in terms of the disposal side, given the economic just confluence of events out there, are you getting what you need from the private market? Is there still a need for the government to step in on the CMBS side? I mean, I know that that's something that both of you have discussed it to some extent. What's the right remedy for where we are right now? Well, look, the reality is we don't wait for government to solve our problems. What we decided many, many months ago is we're going to decide, we're going to, we're going to pave our own path and we'll have to make our own decisions without any help from external forces. And that's just the bunker plan we made seven months ago. And it's worked out reasonably well for us, I would say. I think on the, on the debt side, on the lodging side, there was no, there was no lifeboat for the lodging industry. Um, greater than 50% of the hotels in this country are basically insolvent today. And we knew that. We identified that early. And so we worked with Molus. We worked with our lodging team. And, and ultimately, we, we had to work very hard across seven different credit facilities to exact the correct result, which now puts us in a place where we can ultimately monetize and, and harvest those assets. I think thinking through our mortgage REIT, I'm very pleased with Mike, what, what Mike Lazzi has done there. We've um, we, we only had to touch two different loans on our repo lines, which is fantastic. On When you think about the pool of assets that, that mortgage REIT represents today, now they've got a big cash position. They're starting to play offense and think about ways where they can deploy capital. So once again, decisions made six, seven months ago are now reaping the rewards today. And then the last thing is just the corporate balance sheet. Mm-hmm. One of the highest priorities that I told Tom when I came here as his partner, I said, look, we've got to delever our balance sheet. So we paid down some debt last December. We made a series of constructive moves in the second quarter to rebalance our balance sheet, getting net leverage down about eight times. And we're going to continue to do that. We want to be really as a digital read, as a diversified digital read, Jason, we want to be in that sort of five and a half to six times leverage level alongside of our peer groups like Digital Realty and American Tower. So we're making tremendous progress on the balance sheet. Look, the world gives you no credit for it, right? You delever and people sort of yawn and say, well, good for you. But um, we know that that's the hard work that had to be done. And I think a lot of that hard work is now behind us, which has enabled us to play offense on the digital side. Mm-hmm. And that offense has never been, uh, been better today. Uh, in terms of the 26 years that I've been doing this, I've, I've never seen an environment like this where all of our customers are growing at the same time. It's pretty, pretty remarkable, actually. Okay, can I give you a, different, a little different point of view? So Secretary Mnuchin, Chairman Powell have done an amazing job with 435 individuals trying to figure out how, how do we get a plan to the people. It's not to us, right? It's not to the big companies. It's not the balance sheets. People are panicked for survival. The, the average individual trying to figure out how do I live? How do I go forward? What's, what's happening with my rent? What's happening with my home loan? What's happening with my check that's not coming from that em, em, employer anymore? And that, that confusion and dismay when you have three to five trillion dollars being flushed into the economy and how you disperse it, you have to give them all great credit. But at the end of the day, the solution to all of that has got to be a resurgence of confidence 
across all the things that we talked about. Pandemic, I honestly never thought I would see a global submission, as bad as this is, and as horrible as one death is, and, and how in, in an environment like this we can't find a, a solution or a cure is another quandary. But the cessation of revenue in the world is a problem. And the unintended consequences of that, the, the, the openness of the division between the have and the have-nots, what we're seeing in Black Lives Matter, what we're seeing in Kenosha and Portland and Chicago and, and the anarchy, certainly is part political, which we've, which we've always had. It's being displayed in, in a different way than it's, it's been. But it's part of this financial frustration of people just not having a GPS as to what is their life going to be and can they sustain themselves. And until we fix that, I, I think nothing is going to work. So <clears throat> what you're referring to is, is something that you mentioned at the top of the conversation, which is this move away from globalization towards secular populism, just using the words that you used earlier. Um, many people put that squarely at the foot of this administration, at the feet of this administration and, and the Trump administration. It was <clears throat> almost exactly four years ago that you were on stage at the, at the RNC telling the world about your friend Donald Trump. Many people would blame him for exactly these ills that you're describing in this widening disparity. What do you say to that? I say that, and thank God we're in America where we can all criticize the, the powers that be and hold them accountable for whatever variances that we feel that, that are at stake. Now, s starting with our position, and my position as a public chairman, <coughs> is I support whatever regulatory body is in power at the time, and whatever those set of rules or regulations are, we'll live within and we'll, we'll abide by. Um, Donald Trump has been a friend of mine for 40 years as I started this adventure. I have great admiration and respect for him as an individual and for President of the United States. This is not an easy job, as it is not for the 435 individuals who are paid $174,000 a year to take all the abuse that they all take and try and figure out how, to, how do we solve these, these global ills. At the same time, I don't agree all the time with um, how he messages or, or what happens, as I don't agree with a lot of world leaders. And the political, the political situation, I think, is, is frustrating because people are in agony. And that decision will be in the polls. Joe Biden has been a friend. I have great respect and admiration for him also. And I think that the process is the right process. President Trump came in to disintermediate a system that at the time his core believed was the proper thing to do. We'll now have a report card and a process in which a democracy, which is, which is threatened, I mean, what's happening is we're testing our democracy. It's not working well, right? The rich seem to be getting richer and the poor seem to be getting poorer and people are frightened for their education and primarily for healthcare. Just the basic needs, that's gotta be fixed. Whether that all lies on the hands uh, of a president or a Congress or ourselves as individuals, the complexity of it is beyond the scope of anything that I can, I can um, look at. But this globalization versus protectionism is not just America. 
it's every country post-war around the world today, this idea of America subsidizing all of the national or and international institutions, the United Nations, the WTO, all of these organizations around the world that we fuel, thinking that we're going to ally those individual nations are also suffering from the same dilemma between haves and have-nots, corruption, political dismay. It's a, it's a torturous time in the, in the world and everybody's connected. So what's different today is Mark's 27 years in this business and building a digital infrastructure is communicated instantly. So a Bedouin sitting in the middle of Saudi Arabia has a device. That Bedouin knows what's happening in the middle of Beverly Hills. He knows what's happening in London, Paris, Hong Kong, Japan in an instant. So the cloister of information by all of these political regimes around the world has crumbled and it's crumbled into monopolies and duopolies. Yeah. And the monopolies and duopolies are digital. And President Trump, whatever people think of him, and, and I really look at it simply, is these, these people, these senators, these congressmen, the presidents are all well-meaning. They're all well-meaning. And there is no perfect answer to everybody. It's, 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 it's a torture situation with almost 300 million people trying to figure out where you go. But respect trust, confidence, can only come when people are confident that they can feed their family, that they can educate their family, that they have a future, that the American dream is someplace in front of them. And I think people are confused as to what, what is the American dream today? What is the global dream? Right. And that's not a presidential issue. Well, to the point of the American dream, you know, one of the big questions that I would pose to both of you, because the work that you're doing both digitally and in more traditional real estate sort of cuts to the core of this, especially as I look across the history of, of Colony, which is we are facing big, and I am overusing this word, existential, because it feels that way, questions about the future of cities, the future of suburbs. It, that in itself, the suburbs have become a political issue in, in the last uh, few weeks and, and really ratcheted up the rhetoric from President Trump specifically. What is, as you look around and you think about the digital enablement and you think about the, and I'll start with you, Mark, what is the future of, of the city versus the suburb at this moment? Well, I think we're in transition. Um, and as the engineers and the builders of this infrastructure, we, we see where the traffic's going. Because once again, we're entrusted right. with that information. And what I would tell you today is, is from a network perspective, from a digital perspective, workloads are shifting from the urban core out to the suburbs in, in, a, in a pace that we've never seen in, in three decades. And what I mean by that is the proliferation of network infrastructure is more prominent in the suburbs than it is in the urban core today. So data centers are now being built, Jason, on the edge. You know, what's the edge? Um, the edge for us is, for example, Bluffdale, Utah. We just built a massive data center there at Colony. And nobody would know what Bluffdale, Utah is, but it's the suburbs of Salt Lake City. But there are, are our biggest customers sitting there saying, we need to be there. We need to put our workloads there because in the core of that city, that's not where the activity is. The, the activity is happening outside the city. And so as we think about where we've got to, you know, once again, get rights of ways, get permits, um, we, actually, we, we, we buy fee, we go through the complicated process of entitlements. It used to be those were really complicated issues in state and Maine, which was really downtown New York City, downtown Los Angeles. That's totally changed. We're now fighting to 
deploy infrastructure or build that next generation of real estate on the edge, which is happening in smaller cities where people have moved. You know, my, my belief is some of this is somewhat overblown. I think people will come back to the urban core. Urban core is where really from a, from a social perspective and from a cultural perspective, that is where people like to be, where they want to entertain themselves. So I don't view this as being binary in terms of, you know, nobody coming back to New York City or nobody going back to Los Angeles or Miami. People will come back when they feel confident, when they feel confident that there's a, a good vaccine and that they ultimately feel like that there's a good cure. But in the meantime, the activity in the suburbs, which was largely neglected from a digital perspective, is where we're spending all of our time. When we think about boots on the street of where we're building and where customers are saying, this is where we have a problem. That's where we're putting our energy. That's where we're putting our capital. And by the way, it's not just in the United States. I think about some of the things that we're doing in Europe. I think about the things that we're doing in Latin America as a firm. And, and it's no longer just building those big cities. It's starting to take network architecture and push it further out to the edge, which is candidly where people feel safe, right. where they feel comfortable, and also where they're, where they're conducting their lives. And our lives are happening digitally at home, as Tom said earlier. So it's, it's pretty interesting. It is a pretty big shift you know, from an actual construction, entitlement, and ultimate leasing perspective. There's a lot more activity happening outside of the urban core than, than happening you know, here in big cities. And so, Tom, what do you make of that as someone who's been looking at, at real estate and it's the buying and selling of it, the consumption of it, the creation of it. I mean, is this a is this a catalytic or moment or an inflection point that we will look back on and say our cities were changed, our lives were changed? I don't, I don't think so. I'm I'm long New York City, by the way. If you were asking me, if I go back with my distress hat on, the first place I would be is here. The last place I would be is in, in the other end of the transportation hub, right? So what's happened is great, great places to live around New York City have grown from where does the train and, and the subway go? And that was the key consideration, is I could buy a place in Greenwich at $1,000 a foot versus a co-op or a condo in Manhattan at 4,000 a foot, and I can commute back and forth in, in the subway or train. I think young people are going to get very tired of the suburbs very quickly. The financial engines will exist in places like New York, London, Paris, Los Angeles. But again, it's just an accelerant. People here were already thinking of moving to Florida with a confiscatory tax regime and a political situation which they weren't happy with, whether the mayor is doing a good job or a bad job. It was perceived that it's, um, it's not working. You have an infrastructure here. People are worried about building a brand new condo or co-op. The streets are falling apart. The subway doesn't work. The bridges and tunnels are 100 years old. It's just accelerating everybody's thought and saying, you know what? This has is, this is frightened me. Life is short. I want to enjoy my kids. Because of the digital frontier, I have other opportunities to do. And I want to be where I don't feel the pressure of this, of this epidemic every time I touch an elevator. My belief is that'll vanish. That will go away. The aftermath after this election cycle, whatever that is, will, will start to dissipate with, with a vaccine, with a cure. And I always ask my friends, I say, great, a vaccine, are you going to take one? Half of them will say never, right? right? So I, I, I think cities are here to stay. Suburbs are here to stay. The utilization of them is, is going to be different. And 
And in a, in a replicatable way, it's impossible to replicate New York City. At the same time, you as an individual looking at how you want your children to live, how we want to live our lives, how you entertain transportation and entertainment. One of the big problems is corporations are getting spoiled, right? T&E budgets are zero. Now, does that go back to a Bloomberg saying, great, I want to send 360 of my people to St. Bart's for a convention so that they can bond? I, I'm if not, only. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. So I, I think, again, it's just accelerated everybody's thought pattern. How do you want to live? The frailty of life, the, the enormity and importance of a home. Now, we've all been working out of our bedrooms and living rooms and say, well, I need a little more room, and my kids now can't recreate the way they, they used to and have athletics, so I want more room. And eventually that gives way to saying, you know, my kids only communicate in, in three syllables or with emojis. There's got to be some form of social interaction and connection. How do, I, how do I recreate that in a cultural environment where they can have languages and diversity and and different experiences than everybody else is having on Snapchat. So I think it all, it, it all will come back. It just takes time. All right, so I want to wrap up sort of where we started, which is this handover. And the, the founder to the next generation, Tom, you and I have seen it across some of the best-known investment firms in the world, many of which you've grown up with. Um, what does this feel like to you to, to, to hand off? and, and what does the next thing look like? This actually feels euphoric to me because I've, I've known Mark and Melissa and his family for decades. So we, ha we had an issue at the beginning. And the issue was my board said, okay, great. Because when I came back, I came back two years ago to, to be CEO. And I had a mission of two things. Turn this company around, get rid of this diversified REIT base with an investment management toggle, which the market didn't like. They didn't understand what it was. So to turn that ship and find my own successor. So of course the the, the initial response is great. Find a new successor. Let's hire three search firms. We'll go out and find the best proven public market alternative asset private equity CEO, and we'll put them in place. And Thank goodness to a fantastic board that we have. I told them, to me, that was exactly the wrong way to proceed. Because you and I have witnessed my peers, much smarter, uh, much more prolific, much wealthier than, than I, trying to make that succession to third parties they had no relationship with that didn't have those two essential ingredients, brilliance, courage, and experience together, so that there's no surprises as you move forward. So. My concern was to a series of constituencies, starting with the thousands of people that work for us all over the world, with their lives, with their families, with their inspiration, with their future, with the shareholders of, of the public company, with the banks of the public company, and with the hundreds of limited partner financial institutions we have who believe in us to invest with us. And that's based on character, integrity, consistency. So I didn't start this process with Mark casually. We, we, I invested with him first as an individual investor. We became friends. I saw how he was conducting all of the elements of his global empire as well as his personal empire. 
And so I was really certain when I brought this to the board as an idea, and they took their time and they vetted the process. So by the time that we got here, we accelerated the process. Originally, we were talking about Mark not becoming CEO until January, and I went to the board and I said, look, he's ready, this is the time, we're at the right moment, I'm really good, I can concentrate on the things that I do best, which are getting less and less, because the organization is getting better and better. And in order to make it work, and the reason it hasn't worked in some of our peers is founders, as much as they talk about succession, they can't spell it, right? right? While they're still alive, they occupy all the air in the room and the new CEO doesn't have a chance. So what I've done with Mark is say, the reins are yours, you've got those pieces, I'm not gonna interfere. The board has given you the authority and the mandate to go forward. I'll do those few things that I can do that add value and he's done an amazing job. So I'm, I, I couldn't be more happy and more hopeful. Um, it's the world that we need to worry about. Colony will, will, will be great and will dominate in this accelerated period. We, so we what are you gonna do about the world then? We could use your help, use somebody's help. Look, I think, I think we, we need to build a tapestry of trust, which is really, really difficult. Right? I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the solution. So I, I think we do it one brick at a time. And, and I go back again to say, and I, and I think the, the president has done as good a job as anybody could do. Nobody works harder than he works. And, and whatever the political framework that all of these individuals have is, is complicated. And, and the 435 congressmen and senators that we have also do a great job. It's not Democrats and Republicans. Everybody's just looking for different venues. But the world is, is at a loss for this pattern, right? Great, we, ha we have to press on China and push back. Everybody understands that economic component. But to think that we can exist without having a hand-in-glove relationship with China, or with Europe, or with Mexico, or with Canada, or with Russia, is, is a futile idea. So. I think it, I, I have to challenge you a little bit on that because it feels like part of what this administration has done has taken a go it alone type approach. Well, I don't. I, I, I'm I'm not well versed enough on the political situation to give you a, an intelligent answer on that. But what I can what I can say is, since the war, when you when you looked at the transition of of what we did in order to reunite the world. We did subsidize all of the major institutions in the world to subsidize those countries. And we brought them back, it was to our benefit. And we exported our intellectual property to have stuff manufactured less expensively than we could in the US, which crushed our labor unions, right? Which, which crushed, crushed our manufacturing sectors. And we bought them back, which was hand in glove because we also had to sell our debt because we were at a bigger and bigger deficit so the manufacturers of those things were buying our debt and we get into this very complicated situation. So I am personally, and I'm not talking from a public point of view of Colony, Colony is neutral on all political effects, is pushing back on those institutions makes sense and saying look, you have to take economic accountability now, Europe, Japan, China, everybody has their, 
their own play. But to think that at this stage in 2020, that all of us don't want the same thing. I don't want my sons to be killed in Afghanistan. I don't want Afghanistan kids to be killed by our kids anywhere. It's archaic to, th to think that this adversarial relationship exists, but it's happening at home, right? The utter frustration of people is causing uh, an anarchy that, that is the most frightening thing to us. These economic things, financial things, brilliant people like you and Mark, you're gonna figure them out. But at the basis of this, compassion, trust, confidence, empathy for each other. And it's not a political decision. It's a decision on all of our parts. And this, this pandemic, I think, will end up being a good thing because it's made all of us step back for a moment and say, what's important? I don't know what the answer is. These political mechanisms are so complicated. I have great trust and confidence in all of them, the Democrats, the Republicans, the system, the process. But there is no easy answer. We're a very diverse country and nation, and that's the great thing. It's through the process, hopefully something other than anarchy, right? I mean, Martin Luther King did a fantastic job by using the system to change it. And I think that's what needs to happen. If people feel that way, we, we have a method of doing that. But I'm, I'm hopeful for America. I, I still, as I wander around the world, which is the only thing, that I think my competitive advantage is that I show up. I'll still show up. I look at my brilliant peers and I say, how many, are you gonna be smarter than Steve Schwarzman or David Bonderman or, or, or Leon Black? or David Rubenstein, very difficult to do. Um, what you can do is show up and to listen and to create that tapestry. And I think everybody all over the world is at the point where they're saying we need, we need to bond somehow. And it's not a political decision, it's an individual decision. And that was Tom Barrick, the executive chairman of Colony Capital and the new CEO, Mark Ganzi, joining me in New York City. My first in-person interview since March. Really grateful to them for sharing their thoughts. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.